Buddhist Geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 152, Returning to the Marketplace. This week we speak with Zen Master Genpo Roshi about the relationship between money and spirituality, and in particular the shadow side that spiritual practitioners tend to have in this area. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vince Horn, and I'm joined today over Skype with Genpo Roshi. Genpo, thank you for taking the time to speak with us uh, yet again. We spoke with you, I think, like two years ago, and you big-minded Gwen Bell here on the program. So it's great to talk to you again. Well, thanks, Vince. It's a real pleasure. Nice. And the thing we wanted to kind of explore with you today, well, first, I'll say a little bit about your background just in case people um, may not have been familiar with your work or they may not have heard the interview we did with you last time. Basically, you're one of the three founding members of the White Plum Sangha, which is a prominent community of teachers who studied with originally Maizumi Roshi. And you're the founder along with Maizumi Roshi and your Dharma brother, Bernie Glassman. And now you're running what's called the Big Mind Center. It used to be Kanzian Zen Center in Salt Lake City, where you teach traditional Zen, koan practice, and also a process that you've come up with in the last several years called the Big Mind Process. Today we wanted to kind of explore this topic of money and spirituality. And this is obviously a really hot topic. It's just like all over the place in the Western Buddhist world. And it seems to draw reactions, extreme reactions from multiple sides. On the one hand, you have teachers who teach for nothing and they think it's abhorrent or even impure to charge for anything related to the Dharma. And then on the other hand, there's spiritual teachers that have like fleets of expensive cars and houses, and there seems to clearly be like an addiction to the money and the power and prestige that comes along with their teaching. And then there are like lots of points in between those two poles. And of course, we live in a capitalistic society where a free market economy determines most of our livelihoods. And the Buddhist teachings haven't really ever existed in this type of system. So there's lots of questions around what the right relationship is between money and spiritual teachings like the Buddha's. And so, kind of with that as a context for the interview, I wanted to explore with you that topic. And maybe we could start off just with that broad topic, and, and I know this is something you have a lot of thoughts on. Well, I'm very interested in this topic, in fact, and you know, I've been working for quite some years now on shadows around spirituality, shadows in spirituality. And I've been using both the big mind process to shed light on that, but also what I call the triangle of looking at kind of the, the extremes, the opposite, like spirituality and the, and the um, capitalistic world, or we could say the marketplace and the awakened mind, and bridging these or finding a way to bring one into the other in a healthy way, in a conscious way. In other words, if we look at a triangle and we see on one side of the triangle we've got what is necessary to be in the marketplace, the marketplace mind, I call it, and the kinds of things that you have to be when you are in that marketplace, 
And then on the other side of the triangle, let's call it the spiritual mind or the awakened conscious mind. And there seems to be a tendency when we become more conscious and more awakened, and let's say spiritual, that there's a whole bunch of things that we find very unacceptable in ourselves and in the world. And this is, I think, a very important phase in spirituality and in raising levels of consciousness to go through. The problem is we get stuck there, and it's not a truly non-dual approach to spirituality. It's a very dualistic one because we're stuck in the non-dual. In other words, we get stuck in this idea that certain things are not spiritual, like being competitive is not spiritual, being greedy is not spiritual, being ambitious is not spiritual, being ruthless is not spiritual. We see all these things as bad and negative. It's almost like we're being very dualistic, and we make those things bad and, and wrong, rather than embracing, which I think is the true non-dual, is we embrace even the non-dual. That becomes truly non-dual. So I've been doing a lot of work in this area around returning to the marketplace. And as you know, Vince, in the ten oxfording pictures of Zen Buddhism, the tenth and final stage of practice is called returning to the marketplace. Mm. And I think very often what happens is when we become spiritual, there's a very long series of stages that we have to go through. In other words, from one to ten. And it takes us a lifetime, and we think very often, just because maybe we're back in the world and we're working and we've got a job or we've got a home and we've got expenses, that we're really in the marketplace world. But if we don't take care of the shadow around the marketplace, even though we may be in the marketplace world, we're not really in the marketplace world because we've got all these shadows around it. And if we really want to make a difference in the world, and we really want to bring true spirituality into the marketplace world, we have to take care of our own shadows. And as long as those shadows are there and they're not taken care of, we're going to be handicapped in what we can really do. And so there are people who think that greed is bad, and then they disown their own greediness, and then it comes out in really petty ways. And you can see that in all the spiritual communities read over position, closeness to the teacher, power positions, but it's all disowned, and so none of it is very healthy. So my work of the last number of years has really been about moving from an immature understanding around all the aspects we need in the marketplace, like competitiveness and all this, moving from an immature and unhealthy voice to a mature and healthy relationship with our own competitive nature, our own ambition, our own feelings around sexuality, our own feelings around money, and so forth. So this is a hot topic and one that I'm happy to talk about. Fantastic. Thank you. So jumping right in, since you're happy to talk about this stuff, I thought it'd be interesting to explore an initiative that the Big Mind Center has been putting on recently, which I've heard called 5550. And I really it has don't. Two names. Yeah, it has two names. Okay. Five five fifty and the Big Heart Circle. And the Big Heart Circle. Okay, good. So I was wondering if you could share a little bit about the Big Heart Circle or five five fifty and what it is, because I I don't sure. know a ton about it. Okay. Well, let me let me give you a little background. So all Zen centers that I know rely a lot and depend a lot on fundraising. 
or begging. And that, of course, goes all the way back to Shakyamuni Buddha, the whole thing around begging. However, I think that in Buddhist practice for a very long time, there's certain issues that were just better to avoid. And by avoiding, I mean because they can get really messy and really sticky. And money is one of them. Earning money is another. Sexuality is another. Greed and so forth. So in the Buddhist world, basically, we haven't really faced these issues. And by staying in the monasteries or in the forest or in the desert or wherever we stayed apart from the world, we really could avoid a lot of these issues and not deal with them. But we're living in the 21st century, and we are now, as Westerners, fairly responsible, if not solely responsible, for the future of the Dharma. And I don't believe we can continue to skirt these issues and deny that we live in a world where money is a part of that world, sex is a part of that world, greed's a part of that world, and all these issues, and I feel we've got to kind of face these things in ourselves, in our practices, and in our culture. So that what the 5550 is, we've always had to fundraise, and we've asked for money, but we've never given anything back for that money except for our practice, prayers and meditation for the sake of all beings and relieving the suffering of all beings. But what I heard from a lot of very wealthy people was they've always felt that the shadow around money in Zen and Buddhist communities meant they would give a lot of money, if they had a lot of money, and I've known people with that, and never be properly thanked, or more importantly, anything given to them that was meaningful. So this whole 5550 concept came up a number of years ago. My wife and I were down in Torrey, and we were doing a small retreat for just about a dozen people. And I had a lot of time while my wife was leading some things, and I had a lot of time to just hang out with my students. And I loved the idea of this small group, because I haven't worked with small groups in years, because obviously Kanzio and Sangha became very large, and our retreats are never less than 50, 60 people, usually more like 100, 150. And it was really nice to spend this time. So I had this idea one morning, why don't I do, as a fundraiser, offer to spend 10 days with 10 people, and they would make a donation, instead of fundraising, a donation that would go towards fundraising of $10,000 for these 10 days. And obviously, it would be a special category of people who could afford that. But it would be a way to raise $100,000, which is about what we always ran in the red at the Zen Center. So that would be our fundraiser for the year. Mm -hmm. I was talking to a woman who had served as advisor to two presidents, President Reagan and uh, President Carter, around pharmaceuticals. And she was very close to both these presidents. And I was talking to her one day at Kripalu, and we were very close friends. I was mentioning this idea and seeing if she was interested. And she said, well, you know, Roshi, if you can find 10 people with $10,000, they don't have 10 days' time. 
They don't have 10 days. Mm -hmm. She said, why don't you make it more kind of attractive, more attractive? She said, why don't you just have five people for five days? Because they're going to be attracted that there are only four other people involved. They're going to get a lot of your time and attention. It's something they're going to really want. And five days, most people can find in their year, five days that they could take to spend with you. But ask $50,000. And I just about dropped over. <laughs> it just, just shocked me, right? And I go, no way. This is incredible. I'm not worth $50,000. Uh, who's going to pay $50,000 or donate $50,000 to spend five days with me? You know? <laughs> you know? Can you feel that? I mean, think about it, Vince. Could you ask somebody to spend $50,000 to spend five days with you? And that's how I felt. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> so I said, okay, let's try it out. I'm going to announce it here at Cropalo at this group. We had about 80 people there. And you know we got five people to say they want to come? From that group? Just in that group. Wow. Now, one person canceled and somebody else joined, but we still filled that first one. That was two years ago, August. And we filled four out of the five places, even though there were five that said they would do it, right there in that workshop. They loved the workshop. They loved the work. Obviously, they must have appreciated me. And they wanted to do it. So since then... I don't know how many I've done now, maybe 10. Almost all have been full. One was only two people. Most have been five. A couple have been four. And everybody who's done one, if they could afford it, if you couldn't, have done two, three, four, or even five. One person has done six. Wow. That's how much value they find. And what they say is that nowhere else do they feel when they've donated money, like they donate to all kinds of charitable organizations, do they get something that they put as such a value on as the 5550s? In other words, they're getting my undivided attention. I spend six hours a day doing Big Mind with this small group of people, as well as we're together from 8 in the morning when we have breakfast till 9.30 or 10 at night when we finish dinner. We socialize. We have all this time together. It's all teaching, pretty much, even while we're eating. And they feel that this has given them more. Some of them have been practicing for 20, 30, even 35 years. One person's been practicing over 40. And he's done six of these. Mm. That they get more out of these five days than they do in years and years and years of practicing on their own. And they all said the same thing. By the end of the first day, they've gotten their $50,000 worth of their donation. They all say it's worth five to ten times that. I'm not asking five to ten times, but they all say it's worth that. So whatever anybody else thinks about it, this has now become our major fundraising. In fact, we don't do any other fundraising. This is it. This supports all the work that we do at Big Mind Zen Center. It supports all the work we're doing with Big Mind, getting all of my talks out there and other teachers' talks out there and DVDs, free on TV, online, also on our Zen Eye, all under Big Mind. We go out to hospitals and programs for people with addictions, and we do all this for free. We do university work, prison work, 
We've given $100,000 this last year just to prisoners and, uh, and books and forms like that. I mean, tremendous amount of support we're able to give because of the generosity of these people. There have now been over 30 people to have done the 5550s. So, you know, it speaks for itself. I think it's placing a value on time with the teacher, which is what people want that are interested in spirituality, and they have this money, they need to donate it to some kind of charitable organization for their own tax sakes, and they're getting something back in it. So I don't have a problem with it. Some people do, but that's their problem. <laughs> cool. Well, um, maybe we can get into that a little bit, too, because I think that'd be an interesting thing to explore. But first, you kind of point to this, but I think a lot of people assume when they hear about this type of thing that they assume you know, that you're basically just taking all the money yourself. For some reason, people go actually, there immediately. Yeah, actually, let me just say, I take none of this money. Absolutely zero pennies of this money come to me. All my money comes from the workshops that I have been doing with Bill Harris and other workshops that I do on my own. And none of the money from 5550 go to me. It all goes, it does go for staff salaries, for getting the work out there, and it does go for scholarships, and it does go for equipment, but none of it goes for my salary. And we've been clear about that from day one, that I would take none of this money because I felt that was going to be a criticism. So our books prove this, and it's very clear that none of the money goes to me or my wife or anybody else in my family. It's interesting. Thanks for sharing that. I think that's an important clarification, especially for people that may just hear about the idea, like five days, five people, $50,000, and then they just, from there, people just well, kind of make up what they will. Again, I'm going to say I frankly don't give a shit uh, <laughs> how they feel about it. That isn't even an issue for me. It just shows to me they're stuck somewhere. But no, none of that money goes to me. I have a very small and comfortable little house near the Zen Center, and I drive normal cars, and I don't have Mercedes or, what was it that Bhagwan had, all these Rolls Royces? <laughs> no, I'm not, never have been interested in wealth or being rich in any way. I don't have a lot of desires. My biggest desire is just to get the teaching out there, and this has made that possible. So the money that we receive really just goes to get the teaching out there to the world. You know, we're live at least two times a week all over the world. And then when I do these conferences, we're live on Internet TV for free, where people were tuning in the last two weeks twice a day, all over the world, 450 people, sometimes at a time, mm -hmm. were able to watch it. This is all paid for by the generosity of these very large and, frankly, very, very giving people, generous people. Mm. And their interest is in the work. Of course, they reap and feel they get a lot of benefit from these events, and that's why they keep coming back. But they say, they all say this, I'd be giving this money away anyways. I really appreciate getting this time with you and with the teaching. Nice. I feel like I'm personally following you on all this, and... Um have no problem at all with what you're saying, but I feel like I would be doing a, a disservice to the people out there that might be hearing this and still like their sensibilities are still like offended in some way. And so I just want to kind of 
maybe just one ask one more question. Can I just say one thing? Yeah. You can ask me a question. I really don't give a shit at this point in my life. <laughs> okay. I really don't. I mean, I, I had a big breakthrough in June around the issue of caring and not caring, and I feel I deeply, deeply, deeply care about all sentient beings, and all my work is to help all sentient beings wake up and become more conscious and healthier and with less shadows. And the other side of this whole triangle, I really don't give a shit. But go ahead and ask your question. Way to set me up there, Roshi. (laughs) You're very welcome, Vince. (laughs) Well, I mean, basically, it's kind of an interesting question of what is it or why is it that our sensibilities get so offended when we hear that someone is charging a lot of money or a lot of money to us maybe for millionaires it's not a lot of money but a lot of money for me fifty thousand dollars would be more than i make in a year those people don't have to come right right absolutely we offer we offer so much for nothing but they really don't have to participate and so it's just jealousy on some level that some people can afford to but some people can afford to actually give up their home and become a full-time zen student and the rich people and people with children and occupations and vocations who can't do that don't get jealous because somebody else like myself back in 1971 gave it all up and became a full-time zen student we're really narrow-minded, and frankly, this is the area that I'm trying to help work on, mm. is how narrow we can be. And we can think that because I've given everything up and I live in a Zen center, I've given my life to Zen, and therefore I can't afford to do, let's say, an event like this, or I don't have a large income enough to do work like this, that these people are privileged and they're being treated special. But the people who can afford to come to retreats are also being treated special. And the people who have family and can't come or maybe have a high-powered position as a president of a corporation and can't come, nobody feels sorry for them. So I think it's just the narrow-mindedness around spirituality. And I've been in the spiritual world now 40 years, and I see so much narrowness that we're the smallest-minded people on the planet us spiritual geeks, you know, and let's face it, we are narrow-minded, and we are self-centered, and we are arrogant, and we got to look at that. And that's my whole point, that we become spiritual. When I became spiritual on February 6, 1971, with my first awakening, the first thing I did was cut off all the things I considered not spiritual. So I became not competitive, not aggressive, not angry not harmful, stopped eating meat, stopped drinking alcohol, became pure. And then I realized at some point I had disowned all these aspects. So they came out in a covert way in all my life. And you go to any spiritual center, and I know I'm on my rampage now. <laughs> go you go for to it. any spiritual, spiritual center, and you will find all kinds of backbiting, competitive, aggressive movements. What's the word when it's kind of anger that's covert? There's a word for it. Like passive-aggressive? Passive-aggressiveness. You'll find people trying to get close to the teacher, getting the higher position, not willing to wash the dishes and clean up after themselves. And it's all passive-aggressive behavior because they disowned their competitive nature, their greed, their anger, all of this. 
so it's a hot topic for me, mm. as you can see. I've got a lot of passion around it, and I would love to reach out there into the world and help us all look at these places that we get stuck. Now, why is it the 10th Oxfordian picture, meaning the most accomplished state, is this person who returns to the marketplace with gift-bestowing hands and a jug of wine under the other arm? Why is that considered the highest accomplished state in Zen over and above certain places where we're really into so-called taming the ox or working on our, on our greed and working on this? Because those are the things that we've got to go through to get to the place of returning to the marketplace. And very frankly, very few people, both historically and present day, get to the 10th Oxfordian picture. It's very difficult to go that far. There's so much that we have to face in ourselves that we're frankly frightened to face in ourselves. So you see basically the facing of that as part and parcel of the spiritual journey. Yes, I see it as the spiritual journey. I think that's what you mean. Yeah. I see that as the spiritual journey. And this is something that you've been actively exploring. You kind of hinted at this with the big mind process, both yeah, yourself and your students. Yes, particularly the last ten and a half years. The big mind process has actually shed light on shadows that I didn't even realize were there in me or in others. In fact, the, one of the big breakthroughs for me was about two and a half years ago. And I was going to be giving a workshop on that weekend, and this was Saturday morning, the workshop was starting at 10, and the workshop was around koans, koan practice, you know, these unresolvable questions that Zen masters have posed for years to students or comes out as a conversation between a student and master, and you can't resolve these koans with the dualistic rational mind. You have to move into the intuitive and instinctual mind or the non-dual mind. And I was going to be doing this workshop, and exactly 30 years earlier, Maizumi Roshi in, in 1977 had said to me, Gempo, I really want you to revitalize the koan study, koan system. It's basically lifeless, dead, and archaic. And I want you someday to really rejuvenate it, bring it to life, and, and make it relevant for our society and culture. And you have to promise me to do this. So here it was 30 years later, and I'm going to be doing this workshop on Collins and Big Mind. And I was sitting, it was probably 4 o'clock in the morning, I was sitting, and I went back to bed to get a little bit of rest before the workshop started. And I had a dream. And in this dream, my Roshi appeared. It was a, one of these vivid dreams, you know, really like you wake up and you can't believe you're not still there. And in this dream, we were sitting around in a Chinese restaurant, and we were actually doing a fundraiser. And we used to do these fundraising events, and we would go to Chinese restaurants, and we would raise the money there. So we're sitting around at this round table, and everybody from the 70s was there, Bernie Glassman was there, all these people. And my Jimmy Roshi was sitting to my left. And he looks at me and he says, Gempo, are you competitive with me? And I looked over at him and I said, oh, no, Roshi, not at all. Of course not. And he looks at me and he says, well, I am with you. And I woke up. 
And, you know, it woke me up. I mean, it was a wake-up. Because I realized in that moment that I had still a shadow or a disowned voice around being competitive. Now, I have always been a highly competitive person. I was on three college national championship water polo teams, and the only year we lost, I actually had quit the team before we lost. I was on an Olympic caliber team. My team went to the Olympics in 1968. I had to stop in 1967 because I had two full-time jobs and a marriage and going to grad school. We won the gold medal of academia. Anyways, I'm a very competitive person. But when I became spiritual in 1971, I disowned my competitive side. Now, anybody who knew me through the 70s, 80s, 90s, and this decade knows that I'm very competitive, but it was disowned, so I couldn't see it. In other words, I was in denial of my own competitiveness. When I woke up to owning my competitive side again, I started to see all the places in the marketplace and around the marketplace that I had also disowned. In other words, greed, ambition, not only competitiveness, but all the things that are important in the marketplace that one would say, well, I have to be competitive, I have to be greedy and all this. Now, we, we can take offense to that, but they're all there. And all of a sudden, things changed for me, but they changed for whole Sangha. And the whole relationship around money and the world, the spiritual world in the marketplace also shifted for me. And I realized that it's a universally disowned voice among us spiritual people. I, I think it's really, it's a time in history where it isn't even a choice anymore we have to become more conscious. If this planet's going to survive us, us human beings, we have to become conscious human beings. We have to wake up, and we need to wake up to all aspects of ourself and to all of our shadows and disowned voices so that we truly cannot just realize that we're whole and we're integrated, but to actually be whole and integrated uh, and come from a place where we haven't taken half the pie and disowned it because it's not spiritual or spiritual enough for the spiritual mind. You mm. see what I mean? Yeah. And there is a race against time, and we have the capabilities, as we all know, I'm preaching to the choir here, of destroying our planet as we know it. The planet will survive, but we may not. It's a time where it's going to face our fears, face our resistance, and practice and wake up and don't just believe anything that we haven't been able to really test for ourselves and find out what real gold is and not just big gold. And the Buddha himself said that, and yet we always fall into these traps of believing the things that we read of the old masters, and we always somehow feel that we cannot advance and we cannot move forward. And I have a saying that came up to me one time, a long time ago. We don't want to stand on the heads of our ancestors nor in their shadows, but we want to stand on their shoulders. I think that's very important that we don't say they were so great and what do we have to offer, nor that we're so great, what do they have to offer. Mm.
have a tremendous amount to offer us, and we have a tremendous amount to offer them in the future. And we don't want to fall into a false modesty nor an arrogance. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.